3: Hello and welcome to History Rage, the podcast where myth and misconception is taken and stuck where the sun doesn't shine. The podcast where we take myth and caber-toss it into oblivion. I am your regular host, Paul Bavel, and I'm here with my ever co-host and right honourable member for Rage Towers, Kyle Glover.
1: Hello, we're recording this on my favourite day of the year. What day is that, Paul?
3: Oh god, it's the Ides of March.
1: It's the Ides of March! I posted it again! Only two people laughed and one of them was my sister, but by the time this podcast goes out, it'll be a bit closer to the next one, so you can all laugh and yeah. laugh at them. Yeah.
3: Right, thank you. Anyway! Anyway, well, this week, dear ragers, we are continuing our love of the Second World War, but we are bringing things a little closer to home. So letting us go forward together, both into politics and perceptions, we have writer, columnist and author of Cheers, Mr. Churchill, Andrew Liddle. Andrew, welcome to History Rage. Thanks very much for having me on. It's a pleasure to be here. I, I hope it is. Didn't you, didn't you say privilege earlier as well? It is an absolute privilege. Yeah. Genuinely. Genuinely. (laughs) Good Lord. Yeah. Hear that. We have ways. (laughs) So I've read some of your articles, and I'm currently starting the book. But prior to this, you are somewhat of a dark horse to us because you came to us. So could you give both us and our listeners a brief history of of yourself and your background and your work?
2: Yeah, of course. Yeah, so I, I grew up in London, um, but I moved to Scotland um, for university. Um, so I went to St Andrews uh, for very happy years um, at St Andrews with a bit of history um, and a lot of drinking. Which was which was nice, and I've I've stayed in Scotland ever since. Actually, um, so uh, I spent a couple of years after graduating working uh, in Dundee, uh, which of course I think we'll discuss quite a bit. Uh, as a journalist, I did uh, trained as a journalist there, um, and then went to, to work as a political journalist in the Scottish Parliament. Um, and I currently write write a newspaper column, um, as you mentioned, for the Courier newspaper, uh, a great uh, stable of uh, a great paper in the DC Thompson stable. Um, and, uh, this is my second book. Um, so I also wrote a biography, um, of the former Scottish conservative leader, Ruth Davidson. Um, I'm hoping yeah. Churchill might have slightly more longevity, uh, than, than <laughs> she turned out to, um, but,
3: uh, we'll see. Oh, well, thank you. So, so, so you, mo- you went from London to Scotland and stayed in Scotland, no doubt, once you saw the house prices. <laughs>
2: Yeah, well I you know I now live in Edinburgh which I think is is kind of like a mm. um you know it has all the advantages of London but but you know less journeys on the tube and awful commutes and that kind of thing so uh, yeah. I like it very much.
3: Uh, and mm. you've got the home of our first ever history rager as well which is the Surgeons Hall Museum. There we go so that's an excellent that's an excellent museum. Yeah, in a way this podcast started in Edinburgh and uh, and that brings us right up to today. So you've come on to lower your blood pressure about particular historical myths. So let's dive right into that if we can then. So Andrew, would you please tell our pitchfork-wielding mob out there what you wish that people would just stop
2: believing? Well, I really, really, really wish that people would stop believing uh the myth, the absolute outrageous myth um that Churchill hated Scotland Um and indeed that, that actually Scotland hated Churchill as well. This is something that's incredibly pervasive, and it's just, frankly, it's just not true. Um, And uh, you know, one of the reasons why I wanted to write uh, the book was really to try and uh, to try and set the record straight.
1: Yeah, I'm fairly pro-Churchill as as much as the next man, and you are the next man. But there's no smoke without fire, or so people say. Um, So where does this idea come from? What are people suggesting Churchill? and the scottish people vice versa did
2: yeah so it's 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 a really interesting question i mean i think there's there's sort of two or three kind of i suppose sources um uh for this myth uh, one is churchill's own kind of writings you know he he wrote quite amusingly um about his his trips to dundee when he was the mp there um to his wife clementine and those those quotes are often used by uh people to to, to suggest that he didn't enjoy the didn't enjoy visiting the constituency um very much for instance um he wrote in 1909 um about having a kipper in his um uh, and finding an enormous maggot um crawling out of this kipper uh, and flashing its teeth at him and this uh this is often quoted um, as how kind of Churchill suffered as a result of the the difficult hospitality in Dundee. So there's a bit of that, I think, gives the impression that, that Churchill uh, had a difficult relationship with his constituency. Um, there's also as well that I think contemporary politics, I think, also plays a part. I mean, you'll both be aware, obviously, that in 2014, there was a, uh, a referendum on independence, um, a Scottish mm-hmm. independence, still very much a live issue. And Churchill's legacy has really been pulled into that, I think, because he's such a, uh emblematic figure of kind of Britishness. Um, he's mm. become, uh, you know, almost at the centre of a sort of tug of war uh, where people are trying to either suggest that Scotland's rejection of Churchill is, is a sort of metaphor for its rejection of of Britishness. Um, or indeed, on, on the other side as well, I think you get people, you know, who suggest that because Churchill was an MP in Scotland for 15 years, uh, that shows that actually... Scotland doesn't have a yeah. problem with its with its British identity. Um, and so Churchill, you know, amid this kind of tussle, Churchill's legacy, understanding of what Churchill actually did as an MP in Scotland, what his views on Scotland were, um, have really been caught in the middle and I think really been been damaged um, uh, as a result. Mm-hmm.
3: But is there anything really that does actually kind of justify the idea that, that Churchill hated Scotland or Scotland hated Churchill from the outset before we get into kind of Really, explaining how that might be wrong. You know, what, what, what sort of thing? What, what sort of things are being thought of now in terms of this myth?
2: So, I think, well, I mean, there's there's a lot of kind of um, uh, fake history uh, and alternative facts. I think that we'll probably uh, perhaps get onto uh, a bit later, um, but there certainly is this view. Um, you know, that it's emerged on a number of issues. I mean, there's this view emerged that um, as, as Prime Minister. During the Second World War, uh, that Churchill was willing to sacrifice um, Scotland um, to an, a Nazi invasion of Britain, for instance, um, that's a myth that's very pervasive um, on on social media, and particularly, you know, grew around around twenty fourteen and, and the referendum. Um, I think that's a, that's a that's a good example. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that does answer yeah. the question. Yeah, uh, and you see, um, you
3: mentioned that it's like Churchill's, of course, this iconic. Mm. emblem of britishness you know if you if you think of the british bulldog you think of it wearing a bowler hat and churchill's coat and mm. so it's standing standing mm. uh, standing up to the bosch but is there an element where he's viewed more as a symbol of englishness than britishness uh, and therefore is
2: nothing to do with scotland at all I think I think there's definitely um an element of that of 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 the sense that he's an a very English figure. I don't mm. think that's the reality that, that 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 was the case. I mean as I said, you know Churchill was an MP in Scotland for 15 years um and um had a profound influence on his on his life. Um, but I think that that fact, you know, the fact that Churchill was even an MP in Scotland is actually very little known uh, among people in Scotland mm. today and I think that you know that perhaps helps explain why I think you're absolutely right to say uh, he's become more of an English figure um, and someone who's a bit withdrawn, certainly from from Scottish identity. And, you know, when we talk about some of the myths, some of the misunderstandings about church, I think it is very much, you know, that he's an English figure. Uh, he's trying to impose his, his uh, almost, you know, as a, as a foreign force on Scotland uh, in some of his actions, which, of course, is just completely not the case.
3: So you mentioned there these earlier days. Then he's the the MP for Dundee, uh, I believe it was, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, so t- tell us then about his political career in Scotland. How it starts, what he actually does within it, and uh, you know how how he works up in Scotland and how his career in Scotland ends.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So, so Churchill, I mean, it is definitely true that Churchill never intended um, to be an MP in Scotland. He um, was elected in 1908 uh, in a by election. Uh, having lost his seat in Manchester Northwest uh, when he was appointed to the cabinet for the first time, this this was because he had to um, in those days you had to fight what was called a ministerial by election when you moved from the backbenches um, to the cabinet for the first time. Um, and Churchill was appointed president of the Board of Trade uh, in 1908 and had to fight a by election in, in his constituency of Manchester Northwest, which he, uh, much to his uh, chagrin, lost. Um, and, uh, you know, that really threw his, his political career into a bit of jeopardy and, and certainly put a lot of pressure on the Liberal government at the time. Um, so he desperately needed to find another seat and to find another seat quickly so he could get on uh, with his cabinet career. And Dundee w- emerged as as the best option, really. Um, so it was, it was almost by chance. I mean, Churchill did have other choices um, uh, than Scotland. You know, there were a lot of by-elections uh, in those days because MPs tended to, to die in office quite regularly. But um, but but he chose Dundee, which then was a very safe uh, liberal seat. He, he wrote to his mother. He described it as a life seat that's cheap and easy beyond all reason. Um, of course, it would turn out not not to be um, over, over the course of time. Uh, but he actually wasn't necessarily wrong um, to think that. I think in 1908, you know, uh, Dundee had consistently elected uh, liberal MPs. It had a it was a dual member seat, so it elected two MPs for, for one seat. The other seat was a Labour seat, but it still had a very strong Liberal vote. Uh, and Churchill would actually, you know, maintain and, and indeed grow that vote um over the coming elections. Um he would fight six elections in Dundee and he would win, fi- win five of them. So, you know, again, when we're thinking about how popular a figure was Churchill in Scotland and what was his relationship like with his constituency? Well, you know, he, he did win five elections, uh, the by-election in 1908, uh, twice the two elections in 1910. He then won another by-election um, in 1917. That was when he was—he'd uh, left the cabinet um, as a result of the Dardanelles, um, and he'd gone to uh, this quite extraordinary moment actually, where he went to fight on the on the front lines in the Western Front. Um, actually, with the Scottish Regiment, with the Sixth Battalion of the Royal Scots Fusiliers, he took command of. Uh, you know, again, a Scottish connection that Churchill has that's often forgotten and written out of history. But he he came back. Um, Lloyd George put him back in the cabinet and he, he he had to therefore fight another of these ministerial by-elections in 1917 uh which he won really important endorsement that one of, of churchill's career and then in 1918 um in 1918 he won one of the biggest majorities in the country um in dundee so you know he ha- he had quite a successful um political career in dundee of course until 1922 uh when uh, when he lost and lost quite badly he came he came fourth that was for for a number of factors but not least it was the hard work and the the uh, determination of his long-standing opponent, uh, this extraordinary character called Edwin Scrimger, uh, who was the leader of the Scottish Prohibition Party, um, and was kind of an avowed teetotaler who wanted to ban the sale of alcohol uh, across the UK. And, <laughs> uh, Hang on a
3: minute. I you know, I do I don't want to besmirch any of our Scottish listeners at all, but how the hell do you win an election on a banning alcohol proof stance
2: yeah. in Scotland?
3: <laughs> the home of decent whiskey
2: <laughs> Yeah, it's a very good question. I mean and, and indeed, um uh you know, Dundee actually in particular had, had quite a serious problem with, with alcoholism, so it was it was almost more extraordinary that, that he managed to win there. Um yeah, I, I think Scrimmage's appeal really was was more his as well as being a prohibitionist he was also a sort of um proto-socialist um and i think that um gained him greater popularity among the voters than his um his desire to to abolish the sale of alcohol indeed there were a few um local option uh referendums in dundee after scrimger won the seat uh you know where local people were given the option uh to ban the sale of alcohol um in the city uh, and they were resoundingly rejected so i think that the um the link between uh, Scrimge's scrimge's base in Dundee and um, the prohibition movement was quite weak, and it was it was more to do with his <laughs> socialism. But he, I mean, he fought Churchill at every election that Churchill contested in Dundee, including the 1908 by election, um, and was defeated five times by Churchill. Uh, he was dubbed by by the Courier, the, the paper I now work for. He was he was dubbed the most defeated candidate in Britain, uh, and yet he still kept going. And, and eventually, in 1922, uh, he won the seat, but you know churchill had a fantastic uh, and very varied uh, career as mp for you know almost 15 years uh, in dundee so it was it was a really important time i think in his political life
3: yeah and let's say if you say the, this idea that scotland hates churchill you know they've reelected him yeah on an on uh, um, from what I gather, a pretty increasing majority every time up until 1922, when when suddenly everybody decides to park the drinking and make a uh, make a political decision. But that's not that's not screaming yeah. we don't like you, is it?
2: No, absolutely. And I, you know, one of the infuriating things I think is that you know you have the vote in in 22 in 1922, where you know yes Churchill does lose um, quite badly, but he won the five preceding elections up to that point with ever increasing majority, you know, as I said, in 1918, one of the biggest majorities in the country. And so often you have the situation where people will look at at the 22 election uh, and just view that in complete isolation and say, oh, well, you know, clearly Churchill wasn't popular in in Scotland without actually looking at the course of his his political career there at all, you know, uh, where he was, he was actually consistently popular. And indeed, you know, he won far more elections um, in his constituency than, than many politicians will in their entire career. Uh, so, so you know, I think the notion that he was unpopular is, is 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 clearly nonsense based on that reality.
3: Yeah, and I have to say, one thing I do think about the the Scots and particularly the politically active Scots is that oh God, they will vote. They they will vote. They will come out. They campaign. They were. They are not shy of letting their representative know exactly what they think at, at any particular time. I mean, you mentioned earlier that. You know, it's often thought that he didn't like visiting the constituency. I mean, I know a few MPs, and I can't really put my hand on anyone that really enjoys doing a constituency <laughs> surgery. Yeah. Uh, yeah. But they they keep coming back, and uh, and people like them. And I get the I get the impression that Churchill is actually working well as a constituency MP because if he wasn't, he's not increasing that majority. Absolutely,
2: yeah. I mean, look, you know. Uh, you, you, uh, as with all, um, you know, constituency MPs, as you say, you know, there are clearly things that really annoy him about constituency business. You know, if you look in the archives, there's a, a really, a really funny example is there's a three page invitation from the Dundee Horticultural Society. Uh, to open their kind of annual show, and it's just got this giant no scribbled across the front, uh, <laughs> you know, and it's that kind of uh, that kind of thing. And you know, I think when you look at those things again in isolation, it's quite easy to say, uh, oh, you know, Churchill had no time for his constituency, and you know, it's also true that Churchill didn't often visit Dundee. Um, but I think what people forget is at this time, it was actually very common for MPs to only go to their constituency once mm. or twice a year. I mean, Dundee was a very, very long way away. Uh, Churchill frequently complained to his to the local party, you know, that it basically took him four days because um, he had to take a sort of 14 hour sleeper train to get there and back, you know, which made sort of regular visits um, quite difficult. And, you know, I mean, MPs like Lloyd George very rarely visited their constituencies. So Churchill wasn't unique in this respect. And yet people have this tendency to. Uh, take these things and say, oh, you know, he treated his constituents with contempt. He never, he never visited Dundee. When he did visit Dundee, he complained about it. Uh, and actually, you know, that's that's not the whole picture. And I think when you look at the yeah. the fullness of the sources, you see a very a very different picture. And you know, Churchill was an enthusiastic advocate for for Dundee, at, as uh, you know, as he he had to be if he was going to win those five elections, um, uh, which he did.
1: Can kind of- can I jump in with a potentially stupid question? We may have covered it before, um, but what party is Churchill in when he's winning these elections? Is he a Liberal at this point, or has he moved back into being a Conservative? It's hard to tell sometimes, isn't it? Well, yeah, yeah this is Churchill <laughs> we're talking about. But, yeah, what, what, what is party allegiance at the time?
2: Yeah, so so, so Churchill was in the uh, in the Liberal Party at this time, indeed. I mean, mm. his period as an MP in Scotland almost covers his entire. Period in the Liberal Party, um, he, he crossed the floor in 1904 um, over the issue of free trade, um, and mm. and uh, you know rejoined the Conservatives after the after the 22 election uh, a couple of year a year and a half or so after the 22 election. So um, yeah, this is very much his, his kind of liberal period and period of his reforming zeal, um, which which I think we'll probably talk about um, as we go on. Yes.
3: Yeah. Can I just ask as well that 22 election? Did he hmm. lose that standing as a liberal, or did he lose that standing as a conservative?
2: He did. He did lose that standing as a liberal. Although, of course, there were two competing liberal parties at that election. So um, Churchill was a National Liberal, um, uh, you know, along with Lloyd George. He was part of that kind of liberal faction, if you like. Um, but there was also um, a, an Asquithian Liberal candidate um, who, who also fought the election. So it was quite quite a complicated election, that one in 22. And, and, you know, clearly, I think the fact that uh, the Liberal Party wasn't only divided, but was actually sort of two separate parties competing against each other, uh, you know, it did have a, a serious impact on, on Churchill's ch- chances in Dundee, it wasn't just a, a local rejection of
1: Yeah, so this is this is what I think is the big one. This is the big Churchill in Scotland myth. So let's just get straight into it. Um Right, this idea that Churchill sent tanks into Glasgow. Um true? False? Um <laughs> what can you tell us about that? And I'll just I'll just back away slowly.
2: Write blue touch paper and retreat. <laughs> Yeah, so this, you're absolutely right. This is a great one to start with because this is the most pervasive mm. and, and I think most, most, um, toxic and sort of invidious of, 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 of the Churchill myths, uh, or the Churchill myths in Scotland. I should qualify because there are quite a lot about him elsewhere. But, um, uh, so this, this is the suggestion, um, that in 1919, right at the beginning of 1919, during the, the, the Glasgow strike, Churchill sent, uh, troops. Uh, and particularly often tanks into George Square, which is a big square in the center of Glasgow, uh, where the workers had gathered, uh, in order to attack them and, and break the strike. This is a, this is something that, that, that's often been kind of retold since Manny Shinwell in, in the seventies. I think he first mentioned it in his, in his autobiography in, in 73, I think it was. Um, and it's grown into this huge, pervasive myth. Uh, To such an extent that, you know, it's even now it's even now been given as a correct uh, answer on exam marking keys. It's that uh, pervasive, but it's completely, utterly untrue. And, you know, a cursory uh, review of the War Cabinet Minutes, which anyone can do, you know, just via Google and the Internet, uh, Mm -hmm. reveals it to be completely untrue. You know, what actually happened? Well, first of all, you know, it's not possible for the Cabinet or indeed the military uh, to order troops around domestically to resolve domestic disputes and um, a request for that has to come from the local government which it did in this situation the troops were almost wholly scottish so there's often it's often said that you know these were troops that were brought up from england to suppress scottish workers uh, again complete nonsense there were some tanks that were sent to george or to, to glasgow i should say but they never actually left the depot uh, because uh, they weren't needed, um, you know there was rioting in George Square on that day, but it was over by the time the troops arrived and the tanks were never deployed, and yet there still exists this view that 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 Churchill sent in sent in the tanks into George Square is, is the common phrase you'll see on social media, and it's often that myth that enraging myth is often embellished by photographs. Which relate to completely different, um, events. Um, but you know, we'll show a tank in George Square. You know, I think the common one that's shown is from, for actually from 1918. Uh, you, you, but you know, we'll, we'll, show, show, and this is used by people on social media to say, oh, look, here are the tanks in George Square. Uh, here are the tanks that Churchill sent to, to suppress these Scottish workers. And it's just, it's just not true. It just, it, it never happened. Uh, to be honest, it, it, it's completely fake history.
1: I know the picture that you're referencing, and it is clearly not a riot. It's clearly not a protest. They are clearly looking at the tank. The tank is clearly
2: there as like a display. It's like a fundraising exactly. display, if I understand it right. It, that's, that's exactly right. And, you know, there's a sort of amusing um, story how these things kind of come about. But the, the picture was actually, I believe it was initially used by the Herald. And, and what had happened was someone had just mislabeled it in the in an archive. Um, and mm-hmm. it then got, you know, tacked onto a story about, you know, George Square or, or Churchill's involvement in the riots in George Square. And it's then just ever since just been used as this, as this image, even though, you know, repeatedly, um, it's been called out and been identified as, you know, not being relevant. Uh, the fact that it was once mislabeled and used in that context, uh, means it's now just completely pervasive. Yeah.
3: Yeah, and I suppose if anybody really wants to make the anti-Turchill case, it's it's a fairly easy win to go and pluck that and go look evidence
1: back on yeah. my claim, yeah. particularly yeah. on look, social look. media
3: where you can just pluck one thing from a Google image search and they go, yeah, I win. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: yeah. It's gone around the world a thousand times before anyone's actually verified it or yeah. checked it.
2: And, and I, again, because of the kind of contemporary political climate, you know, often people want to believe this. So, you know, they don't actually look at these mm-hmm. things with any kind of, you know, with a critical mind or or even indeed often when, you know, that they're, they're, they're told, as has been the case repeatedly with this with this specific incident, you know, yeah. this never happened. Um, it still seems to continue to exist and grow organically and evolve, um, I think, because because people want to believe it's true.
3: So just to give a little bit of the kind of wider background then who are these who are these strikers what are they striking about what's the background to
2: that dispute Yeah so it was it was um it's part of the kind of red the the, the red Clyde side um movement um so it was um a strike over um working conditions I, I think particularly um I think was it the 40 hour working week I think and there was a suggestion basically the trade unions were in negotiation um over you know the process to get the working conditions um improved but um certain militant leaders uh decided to to go behind the back and they actually asked the government they 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 telegrammed the, the government to ask them to intervene um uh, to to force the the local government i think to act in their favor which the government refused to do um and indeed the local sheriff then became quite concerned about the workers on the street the potential for violence i mean i think you've got to remember this is in the context obviously of the aftermath of the Russian Revolution in 1917. I mean, you've had Rosa Luxemburg, et cetera, um, you know, in, in Germany as well, in the, in the very recent uh, or indeed sort of at the same time. So it's a very um, heated atmosphere. And, you know, there is a sense, I think, that um, particularly among the local government officials, you know, that, that Britain or some part of Britain at some point could kind of have a powder keg moment with some kind of uh, some kind of workers' uprising. And therefore, and therefore, that's why the local government, the sheriff of, of Lanarkshire, I think, requests these troops from from the British government in order to kind of bulk up security and uh, try and avoid a, a difficult situation.
3: So it's it's like you said, then this is not Churchill, who, let's be fair, kind of really lacks the authority to do so uh, at this stage. It's not Churchill sending troops in. This is obviously like the Lanarkshire Council going, for the love <laughs> of God, send tanks, send guns, yeah. send anything, That's to funny. stop these strikes. Uh, and and the government really going, well, no, we're not going to go that far. You know, we'll send some That's help, absolutely right, yeah. And,
2: you know, actually, if you look at the War Cabinet minutes, Churchill is, you know, probably the most reticent minister there. You know, he's the one that points out that actually – uh, you know, it, it's for the local government to decide, you know, it's not for the military to decide. He's the one, um, who suggests that, you know, there has to be real and, uh, serious provocation for troops to actually be used. You know, he's very concerned about the perception, ironically, that's actually emerged that, that the government w- was sending troops to, in to suppress workers. Uh, you know, he, he was very conscious that there needed to be um violence taking place if soldiers were to be deployed. Um, so so he was actually very, very cautious when it came to when it came to how the troops um uh should be used. Um and as I say, it was it was only after only after they were requested by the local government that that, that they were sent and, and Churchill agreed that they should be sent.
1: So to continue with the um Scottish political theme, as I understand Churchill's one of the first people to advocate for Scottish home rule, although he does stop short of independence what were his thoughts on this for scotland and what what did he do to help this
2: cause well i mean i think that's another thing that's that's really um you know kind of enraging about the, the legacy of church the legacy of church in scotland um which is you know people always assume nowadays uh that churchill was a kind of um you know i suppose a sort of british nationalist um who um you know would, would have been very um contemptuous um of devolution and of um the kind of even the notion of the Scottish parliament again you know this is completely not the case um as you say you know churchill was one of the foremost advocates uh of devolution you know not just he he was always a consistent supporter of irish home rule and and indeed that was the kind of genesis of his thinking on scotland but when he became an mp in scotland he he applied that principle to scotland as well and became a passionate advocate actually for for his whole life um of 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 scottish aspirations um for devolved government um, within the United Kingdom. In uh, 1911, I think it was, he actually took a paper to Parliament, uh, to to the Cabinet, sorry, um, where he called for um, the creation of a Parliament in Scotland, Wales, Ireland, um, that that, um, the rest of England should be divided up into um, six regions uh, with their own assemblies, and that these bodies should kind of be given power over things like education, infrastructure, housing, um so you know a pretty comprehensive devolution settlement um mm. churchill was advocating uh indeed one that um particularly in, in terms of english devolution um goes much further than than the devolution settlement that we have um today and you know in 1912 he, he even said that he supported a federal uk and yet there's still this this perception i think that that churchill um you know was a great centraliser, uh was a massive um you know would have been a massive proponent of of westminster power in scotland Um, and never would have kind of countenanced devolution. No one would think of Churchill as being the kind of the the midwife of of, of devolution. Um, And yet he was, he he really was a passionate advocate for it. So he brings bills to Parliament. Did he actually, uh, do we have any
3: evidence of him kind of actually campaigning, um, gearing up with other political movements that may be pro-devolution, that may be even as far as pro-independence, anything like that?
2: So I mean obviously he 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 would stop short of of being a supporter um, of, of independence and indeed would have I think if it had been uh, a more kind of topical um issue at the time of course you know independence was was a relatively niche um pursuit in in the time when church was an MP in Scotland but um if it hadn't been I think he he would have definitely stopped short of that and certainly um he, he never supported it but he was certainly um a keen advocate for devolution as i said and and he did you know he he supported the petition um in the in the early 1950s um uh, by a, a scottish uh, nationalist McCormick, which was calling for a, a devolved scottish parliament uh, so so he did he did engage on these issues and indeed you know as you can see there was something that that kind of lasted um throughout his entire political career not just when he was a, uh, an mp in scotland okay so on the subject of Kind of myths and things
3: that reputations that have appeared out of virtually nowhere. Because one of the things that's often raised and is through throughout the book is this abandonment of the fifty first Highland Division in nineteen forty at, at Dunkirk, which is picked up on people as again evidence. that oh, Churchill must have hated Scotland. He doesn't give a toss about the Scottish troops. He's just going to leave them behind in France to be either killed, captured, or have uh, have done with them. And so. So what do we know about that on
2: on on each side of that argument? Yeah, well I mean I think again it's 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 um well let, let's take it, let's take it from the top what actually happened I mean I think that you know during the retreat in in 1940 uh in France uh Churchill took the decision that the 51st um Highland Division uh would remain in line with with the retreating french forces um and, and actually ended up at saint valery i think on 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 the french coast um so not so not at dunkirk uh, you know where it, it became trapped and i think a, a large number of the troops there were, were were um were taken prisoner although some did escape the myth that kind of pervades as a result of this um is that churchill chose to to abandon this division um because it was scottish so you know in the midst of um all the crises um that that period of history uh, entailed not least trying to secure some semblance of a fighting force to protect britain from from nazi invasion uh the myth ar- argues that 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 churchill was you know deciding to sacrifice troops specifically because they were scottish you know which which i think is, is to, to any any sensible person is, is clearly a nonsense and and indeed it's actually you know, I think it's a bit of an insult, not only to, to the troops, um, uh, not only to the Scottish troops who were there, but also to a number of other um, regiments who, who who had troops contained in the 51st um, uh, Highland Division. I think the uh, Royal Engineers, for instance, had, had troops there. So it wasn't a purely Scottish division. Um, and yet, again, you know, you have this, this situation where Churchill apparently, because of his hatred um, of, of Scotland, decides that you know, he'll save English troops uh, and send them to Dunkirk, but these these Scottish, you know, Scottish troops can be used as cannon fodder um, and sacrificed. And you know, again, this has been very, very pervasive on social media.
3: What do we know of his reasons for choosing that
2: particular division? Well, I think it was because it was it was in line when um, the German invasion of, of, of Belgium and um, the Low Countries took place. They they'd been doing they did this kind of rotation, I think, where. Um, Uh, Sorry, I'm not a military historian, so, um, but, but, um, where they, um, uh, where they moved the 51st Highland Division, I think, in, in May into position in the front line, uh, protecting the Low Countries. Um, so it was there, it was basically they ended up in the wrong place at the wrong time. Yeah. Um, and so they needed to, to, um, basically conduct a fighting retreat, I Mm -hmm. think. Um, and Churchill made the decision that, you know, that was necessary, I think, to protect and ensure the evacuation of others. Um, but not because, he wanted to keep them in the firing line because they were Scottish. No, to be fair, there there were
3: quite a few other
2: regiments and
3: units that were not so much yeah. abandoned, but left five, Coldstream Guards, Warwickshires, you know, Royal Norfolks, yeah. you know, those sorts of things. You can't,
1: yeah.
3: You can't accuse the Royal Norfolks of being Scottish.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah. do people think he must he was just sat around a big map looking at all the veteran going, Yes, they're Scottish, we'll set we'll leave them behind. Mw-ha-ha-ha. Oh, yeah, it would not have happened,
3: would it? I always speak ill of anybody, but if you're in that position and you're gonna think along national lines as to who you are going to abandon when you retreat from when you retreat via
1: Dunkirk, yeah. the French <laughs> you <know that>. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, as, as I said, I'm fairly pro Churchill, but there's a lot of negative things you can say about the man, but he's not a cartoon villain, is he? He's not yeah. going to go, Ah, yes, who knows? We'll leave the Scots behind because they're Scottish.
2: No, exactly, and it's it's sort of, it's so disproportionate. I think in terms of in terms of um, uh, you know, as if as if he didn't have bigger things to think. of, You know, even if he yeah. actually did have that kind of point of view, as if he didn't have bigger things to think about at that moment yeah. in time. <laughs> yeah, and not a whole
1: a whole team of people to say, well, hang on, we could, yeah, it's 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 a nonsense, as we say. One of his, I think.
3: To my mind, it is more unlikely defenders given his views on socialism. It's actually our former Prime Minister, Gordon Brown, uh, part of the government that actually brought about the devolution um, of Scotland. Um, so what is, what has Gordon Brown had to say uh, about Churchill and how are we seeing this myth being kind of defeated and thought about in Scotland today?
2: Well, well, I mean, Gordon Brown is, has has been a really keen advocate for Churchill in Scotland and, and trying to kind of rescue his legacy from, um, I suppose, the kind of trammels of, of myth and um, fake history that, that we've been talking about. Um, he actually did, I think it was maybe end of 2020, um, he did a, a really important piece with the International Churchill Society. They did a whole edition of their um, Finest Hour um, kind of journal um looking at churchill and his his scottish connections which which Gordon Brown wrote the forward to and contained contributions from a lot of really really good writers on churchill in scotland uh, and and that's i I wasn't included so i'm not i'm, not, I'm not <laughs> my, my trump there at all um i i uh, it was actually one of the things that got me thinking about about this as a topic for a book but um uh, but you know pe- people like Alastair Stewart uh Gordon Barclay is a fantastic historian, you know particularly talking about St Valerie and, and the 51st Highland Division, you know, he's done huge amounts of, of research on that. Uh so 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 Gordon Brown's been hugely influential. So there is a bit of a fight back going on um in terms of trying to rescue Churchill's reputation um in in, in Scotland. Um but it is it is difficult. I think particularly because uh you know to go back to nineteen nineteen and George Square, you know, that is so pervasive that I think as many people now think it's true uh, as would recognise it as being a myth, um, and, and once you get to a point where these things are such commonly held views that you know they're accepted truths and are put on exam marking keys and are taught in schools, it's mm. really hard, I think, t- t- to persuade people um, uh, mm. otherwise, or you know that that the, what they believe is is, is false. Mm. Um But but you know, but there is there there is a growing interest in it, and I think I think hopefully you know as time goes on and perhaps as the temperature in Scottish politics maybe cools a little bit. Uh, we might see a bit more of a reflection, you know, a bit more of a balanced reflection, I suppose, on on Churchill's legacy in Scotland, and hopefully, particularly, you know, these fake these this fake history, which is simply not true, you know, might dissipate a bit. But um, you know, hope, hope springs eternal in a young man's breast, uh, and uh, <laughs> I don't know if that's a false hope or not.
3: Well, thank you very much, Andrew, for uh, for bringing that case to redeem a reputation. Uh, may I say this may have been our finest hour.
2: Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Do you feel better? <laughs> Yes, that was, that was, yeah, I do. I do. I feel yeah. good. I feel it's good. It's cathartic, isn't <laughs> it? Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Well, if you'd like to
3: know more about Andrew's work, then you can and should purchase his excellent book, Cheers, Mr. Churchill, Winston in Scotland, uh, from the History of Age bookshop. And we will have links to that in the show notes. And you can see his writings for The Critic and The Courier amongst many other publications. And of course, you can follow him on Twitter at ABT Little. So once again, Andrew thank you very much for coming to History Rage. Thank you both very much for the opportunity to let me vent. You're welcome, sir. Mm -hmm. Ladies and gentlemen, I hope you've enjoyed this episode. You can follow us on Twitter at History Rage or individually. I am at Paul Bavel. And I'm at Kyle G History. And we would love you to join the ever-growing Angry Mob on Patreon, as this really helps us meet the costs of podcasting. Your £5 per month will get you early episodes, entry into all of our prize draws, the invite to put questions to future guests, and, of course, the coveted History Rage mug. And you can subscribe at patreon.com forward slash history rage. But until next week, stay angry. Bye-bye.
1: Bye-bye.